0: Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman,
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are finishing peace. This is our fourth recap episode of Chapter 5, and man, it's been a journey. Yes, we are finishing the book, the recaps at least, this episode, which is
0: just Uh, amazing. It really has been. It's literally (laughs) been years for us, and a lot has happened during that time. But first, before we get to that, Brandon and I just did a special bonus episode over on ATAS, a speculative fiction book club podcast on which we talked about The Forever War by John Haldeman. This is an episode that was commissioned by one of our listeners, which was so awesome and so generous gave us a really fun opportunity to keep thinking about Starship Troopers as well, which we have also covered on ATOS thanks to another awesome and generous commission. Uh, We just had a lot of fun doing this, and it's a really important work. And we also invoked Gene Wolfe a few times on that episode. So uh, I hope you'll go check it out.
1: I really hope our listeners of this podcast will go check it out too, if they haven't already checked out the other shows that we do. uh, Because this is, I don't know, an episode that That was kind of important for me to record just because we've talked about not just the Forever War, but its relationship to Starship Troopers on a number of different occasions throughout our our long friendship, and uh, it was just really great for me to revisit this novel and to talk about it with you on air. So I really hope uh, our our supporters and listeners will go check that out. But we shouldn't delay any longer in getting to this <laughs> final recap of peace. Uh, I don't really know what to say about this section except we're going to encounter another Irish fable and the end of the book. So this whole novel, because the chapters have been so long,
0: we've really been at the the mercy of wherever Gene Wolfe has decided to put section breaks in determining how much of the text we're going to be able to cover in this or that recap episode. And what that means is that this final recap episode is probably going to be pretty short. So far on the run of this show, well over 100 episodes at this point, the shortest episode we ever did was actually very early on. It was Car Sinister, which I don't know. I don't even remember doing that episode anymore. We should actually probably revisit that just for fun at some point. But uh, we were joking before we hopped on today that this has a chance of unseating Car Sinister. So I don't know if listeners want to make a game out of that. You can keep your eye on the, on the clock. I guess you'll know before you hit play. We're the ones who don't know yet. But at any rate, as we said, we are at the end of this book. But it is a strange winding down of both this book and this chapter, I think. We're really just covering four pages here, but three of them are a story that someone else is telling to Weir. That someone is Dan French, the executive who handles PR and who has been leading the tour of the plant that we've been mostly occupied with this chapter. That tour is now over, the reporter is gone, and so Weir invites Dan to his office for a drink. Uh, The drink is scotch, and it's good scotch at that— Dan reveals here that he's a Doherty on his mother's side, and it is interesting that this is now four chapters that feature
1: a Doherty in some way, which I I think is only surpassed by the Weir family. Yeah, I, I was really waiting for Doherty to show up in this chapter, and it felt really out of place for there not to be one. So when I got to this moment, it was a really welcome reveal I wonder if Dan is Blaine's hostler's grandson or something like that. I, we don't know exactly what this Doherty family tree looks like. But actually, what I find most interesting in this section, in this really brief section, is the way that Weir suddenly thinks that rather than drinking scotch, he should drink schnapps, which is a properly Dutch liqueur, and that maybe Dan should drink brandy, uh, French liqueur. And I find this interesting because in a book that is so keen to remind us that no one is from America, that we live in a melting pot. I mean, think of Milicek, a Polish man cooking French cuisine, that we should think at the end of this novel that people should really be drinking the booze found in their nation of origin or what is famous for being from their nation of origin. But here's the deal. Weir's mother's maiden name is Elliot, which is a Scottish name. (laughs) And Dan is about to tell an Irish story based on his mother's lineage. So it feels to me like Wolf is up to something here, though what again that is, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe he's asking what makes him Dutch at all. Well, I think, I mean, this is a joke, right, on the idea of mother tongue,
0: right? It's what it really matters for our, our culture, certainly in a, uh, at least in a, a pre-modern society is really what your life is like at home with your mother, because envisioning a kind of society in which fathers leave the home to work, that really it's your your mother's cultural heritage that actually defines your own culture and who you are it seems like maybe that's kind of a sly joke there that you know even as we inherit our last names from our fathers you know at least certainly in the 1970s that was that was the case for most people really we've inherited our taste in alcohol from our mothers <laughs> well I think
1: that's a fair reading here it's a it's a it's a strange moment in the novel but I think we've done all we can with it
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right well the deal here is that once we learns that Dan French is a Doherty on his mother's side. He decides that he wants Dan to tell him a story because he's got 20 minutes to kill before he needs to leave for Doctor Van Ness, and uh, he doesn't have a cell phone to mindlessly look at dumb social media stuff or just watch videos of cats. And so, what he really wants is an Irish tale. And here it is: it's a story about the she. And Dan says, "You may think you know what the she were, but you do not, for there is no word for them in any tongue today." He then goes on to tell us the things the Shi were not. They weren't leprechauns. In fact, they created leprechauns to work for them. They also weren't fairies, who were merely the toys of the Shi children. And indeed, this story is about Shi children, in a sense. Shi only die from time. Nothing else can kill them. And so they seem to be immortal. But of course, they aren't. And one particular she realized that someday his children would die and this fact, this realization, saddened him, and so he decided to do something about it. And so this she observed that geese came to his lake for a period every year and never seemed to die. Just every year, the geese came over and over and over again, and so he decided that he would magically transform his children into geese so that they too could live forever. Now, to be clear, he, he did understand that individual geese died, but What he perceives is that the unit of geese is not the individual. The unit of geese is the flock, and the flock never dies. And this magical transformation works for his children for a while. They are are not merely transformed into three individual geese, but are transformed into an entire flock of geese. But still, over the years, the flock dwindles until it is down only to one goose, the others all killed by men or heroes for this or that material need. And so this goose searches around Ireland for someone with the second sight, but all she finds is a hermit. The hermit explains that there's nothing he can do to help her except deliver an apocalyptic message. He says, "'The time of the she is long past, and the time of geese is passing, and in time men too will pass, as every man who lives long learns in his own body. But Jesus Christ saves all.'" And with that, he baptizes the goose, and so now, standing in front of this hermit are the human forms of the she's three children, but they are old and bent because they had far outlived their time. And that's it. That's where the story ends, uh, rather uh, abruptly, I think.:
1: Yeah, uh, a couple couple things here. So first, there's a, a bit in this story kind of interrupts the story a little bit where Weir is preparing to hear the story from Dan and he's interrupted by Amy Haddow, his new secretary. And Weir is really stern with her. Amy handles it well because she hasn't just come to interrupt Weir and he's barked at her or whatever. She's here for a purpose and a a rather important one. Uh, Miss Burkhead has died and Amy asks Weir if he wants to do anything about it. Weir basically says that Amy should spend a hundred bucks on flowers and then mention in a note that Miss Burkhead was also JT Smart Secretary, and then she should close the door on her way out. So we get really two pieces of information from the section. One, Weir is actually kind of awful to work for as we suspected. Uh, and Julia Smart's middle name starts with a T. I'm sure we can make some hay from that if we really wanted to. It's a 100% Tiberius.
0: Has to yeah, be well, Tiberius. Yeah, well, that's what Same I've been Kirk.
1: thinking too. Yeah, it's got to be Tiberius. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the she story here. Uh, one thing I want to point out before uh, I talk about the story itself is that uh, the word banshee is actually a, a compound word meaning lady of the hill or mound or fairy lady or something. Um, but the second word she there comes from. You know, it's spelled differently, but it comes from this mythic uh, Irish fable, lore, legend, or whatever surrounding the she. So there is some return here or resonance with the old Kate story that we had in chapter one. Uh, the next thing that I want to point out here is that this story takes place where it takes place in Ireland is Lough Conn. It's not Laughcon, which we've been to, um, <laughs> but this story, Laughcon means Lake of the Hounds. One origin for the name has to do with Finn McCool and his hounds. And hey, we've had Finn McCool show up in this novel before too, in another Doherty story. But perhaps more importantly, when we think about Lake of the Hounds here, we think about the way Wolf plays with his name, uh, could mean dog or hound or something like that. Uh, there's a wolfiness to it. And we have... Uh, Wolf mentioned f- first as the first animal of Ireland in the start of Dan's story. So I don't know. We'll just make of that what we will. Next, the only named child that we have from the she father is Deirdre. And that means brokenhearted or sorrowful. If we stretch the meaning a little bit, we might even be able to use forlorn as a synonym for the meaning of that name. So there's a lot going on here, I think, with names and what Weir is pointing to, things we can make sense out of if we really feel we need to, because as this is a story that ends the novel, I think we feel compelled to get some meaning out of it. We also then get the explicit introduction of something like Orthodox Christianity here at the end of the story, with the hermit being a priest and speaking to the redemption of all things by Jesus Christ. So that's also really strange, maybe not strange uh, for people who know that Wolf is, a, is an Orthodox Catholic, uh, but strange in a novel that seems to not have a clear theology, uh, uh, a clear maybe Christology, even though it is looking at Dante and, and Morister and heaven and hell and things like that.
0: Yeah, just to be clear, you are using orthodox there with a lowercase o because uh, that with a capital o has 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 is a real thing that exists and is
1: not what you not what you mean here. Yes, that's that's thank you thank you for that clarification. That's absolutely the case. Yes, lower lowercase o for orthodox there. Uh, the last couple things I want to point out here. I know this is a crazy list. Is the images of apples uh, rosy apples to describe the cheeks of the now aged she. Apples, you'll recall, are what started this whole novel off, the whole meaningful events in Weir's life with Weir defending his dead uncle's painting from apples being thrown by Bobby Black. We also see here maybe another residence that Deirdre is a member of a family with a woman and two brothers, with the woman being the dominant. She's the first child in the story that's being told here, but we can also be think of that as being the dominant fa- family member of the family. From Weir's perspective, we can think of that as Olivia, who is a woman who has two brothers, even though one is dead. So maybe all I'm trying to do here <laughs> is point out that uh, Weir is trying to use some form of myth to wrap up the novel somehow. I'm not sure if I'm able to quite make sense of it. Fortunately, we have time to do that. Other than that, though, this feels like a very strange way to, roughly speaking, end the novel.
0: Right. And of course, it's not, you know, these are not the final words yet, but we really do have only one section left of this book, and it is just one paragraph. And so I am just going to read it into the microphone to, to give us these final words. I must have fallen asleep. I awoke just now, and Dan had gone. It is time, and past, that I kept my appointment with Dr. Van Ness, but I find the yellow reminder from his office nailed to my desk so that I cannot withdraw it. It is time, I think, that I see the enchanted headrest of the Chinese philosopher looming behind me, and I wait it's coming. My aunt's voice on the intercom says, Den, darling,
1: are you awake in there? And that's the novel. Until I scoured the novel for you know what we could make sense out of this last line, I thought it could have been possible, given that Antirabella Arabella is the founder of the Cashinsville Spiritualist Society, that this was some kind of summoning of Dennis by his Aunt Arabella to talk to him, something strange like that. But this last line here has been used before in the novel. Olivia says this to Dennis on page 83, if you want to look it up, just after he doesn't finish the story of Leia's suitors. (laughs) Uh, So this is a line that really suggests to us that Den either may still be in his bedroom playing with his chemistry set or something. Or it cues us into the importance of these fictive and mythic stories we've been getting throughout the novel in case we, for some reason, thought they weren't important. You know, or it could just be that he's hearing his voice just like he, his Aunt Olivia's voice, wish yearning for that time in childhood when he lived with her, just as he smelled her paint and chemicals in his house wafting through one of the rooms before we learned that she had died. So. Yeah, this is a line that's, I think, fairly important to to the rest of the novel. I think
0: it also suggests that, although this is it, this is all of the words that we are going to get of this novel, that this novel is still ending in media res. It's, it's, this is not the full story of Weir here, right? That he's interrupted in telling us this story, just as he's been interrupted
1: in reading stories before. Absolutely. We also get this bit about Jesus Christ and Christianity and knowing that the time has come to, to move on, you know, that, that ultimately, though we may not have the quite the end of this novel, the true end is Jesus Christ's redemption of all humanity. But we have that in contrast here with Weir's wish to find the headrest of the Chinese philosopher, hoping perhaps to wake up once more maybe when he's 25, and start living his real life once again. I do think that the book ending with the Chinese philosopher is really important for a number of reasons, uh, one of which at least we'll have to encounter in our chapter five wrap-up episode, but which we will go into more thoroughly um, in, our, in our whole novel wrap-up episodes. And so with that, that's the end of the recaps of Peace, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll enjoy the episodes to come where we uh, talk about this more in depth and talk about the novel more in depth. But yeah, for this episode, that's going to do it. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn
0: McDorman. I hope you'll use the link in the show notes to check out our episode on The Forever War over on ATAS, and also then check out the entire back catalog of that show and As Brandon said, next time, we will be back with the Chapter 5 discussion episode. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.